and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're discussing the genetics of Thor, well, Chris Hemsworth, his Alzheimer's genetic results, and the pros and cons of direct-to-consumer genetic tests. At the end of last year, Chris Hemsworth, the actor who plays Thor in the Marvel movies, revealed he was at particularly high risk for developing Alzheimer's. He was filming a TV show called Limitless about pushing the limits of the human body and slowing down ageing. And so he undertook a whole series of health and fitness tests, including a genetic test for the APOE gene associated with Alzheimer's risk. To help unpick what Alzheimer's genetic testing involves and direct-to-consumer testing more generally, like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, I sat down with Kira Deneen, a genetic counsellor and host and creator of the DNA Today podcast, covering topics around genetics and health. To get us started, what do we know about the APOE or apolipoprotein E gene? The protein that's made from this gene helps carry cholesterol and other types of fat in the bloodstream. So that we understand. But we're still a little bit confused on its role in Alzheimer's. So recent studies suggest that problems with brain cells' ability to process fats may play a role in Alzheimer's and other related diseases, but it's not well understood at this point. So, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, if we're testing for it, we must really understand it, but not at least for its role in Alzheimer's. Not exactly. So that's where the gene is functioning properly. He's found out he's got two copies of the fourth mutation. I'm guessing it's the fourth one they discovered. Do we know anything more specific about that? Yeah. So we all have APOE gene. So you have two copies, I have two copies, everybody has two copies. It matters which version of the copies you have in terms of your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in your life. And again, risk is a huge part. It's not a diagnosis. He's not at 100% chance like he will have Alzheimer's. He's just at a much higher chance than the general population. So there's three different variants. I don't know why they started two. So we have... Oh, that's really confusing. I know, right? It's like, let's... You know, genetics is confusing. Let's just, you know, add a little more on. So we have version E2, E3, and E4. So the most common is the middle, E3. And so in terms of someone's risk for Alzheimer's, it's just neutral. Now, E2, it's the least common to have. And it actually reduces your risk for Alzheimer's, which is interesting. Uh and then E4, the version that Chris has, I'm on a first name basis, so you know we'll go with Chris. Of course, so, yeah. You know, so he has E4, and that is increasing his risk for Alzheimer's. Now we have two copies of each gene, right? In that clip from Limitless, they talk about the person that's giving him these results on camera, at least, is telling him, okay, you got one version from his biological mother and one version from his biological father. So he has his two versions that he has is both the versions E4 that increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And having more copies of E4 is going to be incrementally riskier for Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. So if you have two copies like Chris does of E4, 
you have a 40 to 55% risk of developing Alzheimer's by the age of 85. So that's recent stats that I saw. Now you might be saying, well, what's the chance of just, you pick someone off the street, what's their chance of Alzheimer's disease without knowing any of that's their genetics? That's exactly what I was going to yes, ask. Yes, yes. So my risk just in the general population is 10 to 15%. So it's not zero. I think that's a good thing to remember. But it means that two copies takes your risk from 10 to 15 to what you said about 40, 50%. Yeah. That's that's a huge jump. Huge jump. You're right, Sally. It's a huge jump. So if a person finds out, they do a genetic test and they find out, like Chris Hemsworth, they've got two copies of the APOE4 allele. So they're 40 to 50%, basically flip of a coin if they're going to get Alzheimer's. Is there something that people can do for Alzheimer's to try and mitigate it? Because the risk of, I don't know, diabetes, people can take lifestyle actions to try and mitigate that. Is there anything you can do for Alzheimer's? Yeah, it's actually similar. So I think one thing to think about with this is that if I want to reduce my risk for Alzheimer's and if Chris does, we'd be doing the same thing. So it's not necessarily something specific that if you do the test oh, well, now you should do this. It's just he he has even, an, and he said in an interview, he has more of a motivation now to do this because he knows his risk is, as you said, a flip of a coin. So knowing that, he's like, I am highly motivated to do everything I can to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's, of developing that. So, I mean, as you alluded to, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So just, you know, what your GP would say, right? Exercise, diet, you know, not smoking, staying physically, mentally active can protect against cognitive decline that goes with Alzheimer's and even just managing other conditions. So like you mentioned diabetes, if someone has diabetes, just trying to reduce the effects of that, Um, looking at trying to keep your blood pressure and cholesterol in a normal range, which cholesterol kind of makes sense because remember at the beginning I mentioned APOE helps to manage cholesterol. So that that connection makes sense. But it's not like another very famous celebrity genetic diagnosis of Angelina Jolie and BRCA genes. I remember that because we were probably both teenagers when that came out and she had a preventative double mastectomy, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Because she found out she'd got whichever genetic versions of the BRCA gene that made her most at risk for breast cancer and that is very much, I mean, it's a drastic option, surgery, but it's something that you can do to dramatically reduce your risk. It seems like Alzheimer's isn't similar. So even if you're told, oh, you've got a super high risk of getting Alzheimer's beyond live a healthy life, there's not that much you can do with that information. At least right now. So, I mean, you've seen through Genetics Unsept how fast genetic changes, right? Just in the time that you've been the host. So looking at that, I mean, I think I would hope in the near future and certainly in our lifetime, I would hope again that we would have more like, oh, if you have this version of the gene that's increasing your risk, it's E4, whether you have one copy or two copies, then you know, oh, well, maybe specifically you should do this. I think the only thing that would be on my radar is if there's clinical trials and as part of the clinical trial, the inclusion criteria is you have to have two copies of E4 and you have to have that documented before going into the trial. That That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, I think the only other thing just for anyone to do is it's interesting. There's been studies saying that 
maintaining socially engaged and having strong social connections, family, friends, that decreases your risk too. So just outside of maintaining a healthy lifestyle, I think that's not under that umbrella that I think of when I hear that. But it's interesting. I'm sure a lot is going to change in our lifetime. So we referred earlier to the fact that Chris Hemsworth was doing this TV documentary. He was undergoing a huge battery of tests, like more than the normal person would. And I have some medical doctor friends who will say like, there's a risk of testing because if you test someone for every day, you'll find something. If you look hard enough, you will find something wrong with them. And so given that there's only so much you can do if you get this. And I have to say, Chris Hemsworth in the interviews is very careful not to say it's a diagnosis, but to get such a strong indication that you might develop Alzheimer's. Like you as a, with your genetic counsellor hat on, seeing people coming to you, would you recommend that someone gets their APOE genes tested or not? Because there must be a huge mental burden knowing that you're likely to get Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. And there's very little you can do. Right. It's like, you know, compared to Angelina Jolie with her high risk for breast cancer, that was like, okay, I'm going to do surgery, remove breast tissue and drastically reduce my risk where Angelina Jolie actually is a lower risk of developing breast cancer at this point than I do. So I have not had uh, any genetic testing for cancer. I've not had any surgeries. But because she's removed that breast tissue, she has much lower chance than me just being general population. So as you pointed out, that was a, not maybe straightforward, but there's, there's clear-cut options for her. Now for Chris, it's kind of like, okay, well, what does he do at this point? Other than what we mentioned, just kind of like generic um, lifestyle choices. So I think as a genetic counselor... I'm not someone that ever says, oh, I recommend you do this. So it's more like, here's your choices. Let me educate you on the choices and see what's the best fit for you and your family. So it's really just seeing what the best fit is. So I think if I was in the situation of talking to a patient and figuring out if this is a match for them, I would ask them, what would you do with this result? If you find out you're high risk, is there anything that you're going to do differently? Some people may say yes. Some might say, well, no, because there's something, nothing clear cut. I would also ask, is it the right time in their life to pursue this genetic testing? Are they going through a family hardship? Are they, you know, starting a new job? Did they just move? Did they just get married? Are they pregnant, having a baby, or is their partner pregnant? So other life stressors, like, is this really the best time to be looking at this information? And then overall, just like any decision we make in life, are the advantages outweighing the disadvantages? Because I do worry about that anxiety that goes with it where, yeah, you can do some stuff, but not really too much. Like, is it, you know, for me looking at this, I'm holding off on doing this. And, you know, if there's something clear cut that says, oh, well, if we know you have this variant, we can start doing, you know, ABC, then maybe I would consider it. But at this point, for me personally, I don't see that this is really advantageous and helpful where some people might say, no, I want to know because that that will finally kick off me getting to the gym, having that healthy lifestyle and, and everything else. So you are, by day, a genetic counsellor. First question, what do you do as a genetic counsellor? I mean, we're talking about this very specific issue, but more broadly, what does your job entail? 
Yeah. So as a genetic counselor, there's so many different facets of people's jobs. But I think in general, what genetic counselors do is help people understand genetics, how it applies to their health and their family's health and how it could apply to them. In my sector, I work with pregnant people or people looking to become pregnant and going through, as you alluded to, family history, going through biological family health history and seeing is there anything in the family that we should be aware of and then go through genetic testing options and review ultrasound findings or just like the ultrasound they just had. So that's like a typical intake appointment for me. And then depending on that testing, if something comes back that there's a higher chance for their pregnancy to have a condition or to have a future pregnancy if they're not currently pregnant to have a condition, then we're going through that and kind of looking at next steps and, and more education. So it's um, it's a very interesting job. And what is best practice? Like as a patient, do I go to my GP, they order a genetic test, the results come back and they're like, oh, there's this thing, I don't quite understand it, I'll go and see a genetic counsellor. Or is it you go and see a genetic counsellor and they decide whether you should do the test? You could do either way. So I think it depends if your GP is comfortable ordering genetic testing. Some will be like, yeah, I'll do it. And if something comes up I don't understand, I will reach out to someone to educate me to educate you as the patient or refer you out. Others will say, you know what? I don't know too much about this. I would feel better if you saw a genetics expert like a genetic counselor and then like went through that. So I have both. I have patients that are referred to me because they have something come up on genetic testing that I didn't order. And then I have some that come to me because they want to talk about testing being ordered. And I mean, obviously, I'm going to be biased because I am a genetic counselor, but I think it is really great to meet with someone that's very well-versed in genetics to go through, do you want to do this test or not? Just like we talked about for looking at your APOE status. Like, it's not necessarily just, oh, okay, order the test. There's a lot more to consider behind that. There's always reasons to do the test and always reasons not to do the test. And you kind of have to weigh out both sides. And I think it's helpful to talk to someone that really understands the genetics and the testing so that you can have that thought process and dialogue out loud with an expert. What are some of the reasons for getting a genetic test? So we talked about the cancer space of knowing, let's say you have a family history of breast, ovarian, prostate cancer, colon cancer, stomach cancer. I mean, so many different kinds that if we see a certain pattern in the family or people at young ages with cancer or rare cancers, so lots of kind of different setups. But if we see that going through and saying, well, if you want to know your personal risk, doing a genetic test might help us narrow that down a little bit more and get more specific with it. So I think that's, you know, the case for a lot of different genetic conditions, even in the pediatric space. If you have, you know, an undiagnosed disease, maybe it's a rare disease, which is more common than people think. About one in 10 people in the world have a rare disease. So, you know, obviously individually they're rare, but collectively they're quite common. And so looking at, okay, if you have an undiagnosed disease, that's going to be much harder to treat, to understand maybe what to expect next. Whereas once you have a diagnosis, you you might have more of a map and looking at, okay, what are my next steps? And as I mentioned, being eligible for clinical trials. Oftentimes, you need to have a genetic diagnosis or you know a, a genetic result to be able to be eligible for a lot of clinical trials. So I think it's just being 
having a be more understood and having more information at that point can be really helpful. And then, you know, definitely in the cancer space looking at, okay, are you doing any screenings or surgeries to reduce your risk to develop that cancer? And sometimes, can't speak as much to the UK, but in the US, the insurance is more likely to cover those extra screenings if you have a genetic test to back that saying, well, I need this. I need more mammograms than the average person because of my BRCA1 or 2 status. Gotcha. And I mean, perhaps you wouldn't recommend someone against getting a genetic test in your position, but are there any things that you think people should consider as reasons why they might not want to that they don't tend to think about? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's looking at incidental findings. So that's if we do a genetic test for a certain reason, and then we find out something else that wasn't the intention of the test. So let's say in a pediatric space, we're testing the kid that has this undiagnosed disease, and we say to the biological parents, hey, it'd be helpful to look at your DNA so we can rule out some changes. Sometimes when we go to do that, we might find out, oh, wait a minute, none of this is lining up. That parent is not actually the biological parent. That wasn't the intention of the test to look at paternity or maternity. And that kind of applies to other things, especially in the direct consumer space of people just ordering their own testing, of looking at ancestry and finding relatives. You may discover something about your family that you were not expecting to find out that you know, someone in your family is not biological or finding a biological relative that you didn't know existed. So it can definitely shake up a lot of families, understandably. And it's it's more common than people think. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at geneticsunzip. We've just been hearing about the APOE gene and its link to Alzheimer's from Kira Deneen, as well as some of the discussions she has with her clients as a genetic counsellor. But for many of you listening at home, you might not be about to go to your GP for a genetic test anytime soon but have considered doing one of the many direct-to-consumer tests on the marketplace. Let's hear what Kira has to say about those. Let's move on to talking about direct-to-consumer genetic testing. So these are the companies that people have heard of, like 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, DNA, all of those ones. You order a kit online, you send them your spit in the post, and then they come back and they tell you about you, supposedly. And I, they're now ranging, they're as low as about 50 quid, I think, for some of these tests. So they're incredibly cheap. And people might have heard Chris Hemsworth talking about his Alzheimer's diagnosis, have thought, hey, I want to get that test. But rather than going, trying to book an appointment with their GP, they're just like, oh, I'll just do it online. I don't know if you can get your Alzheimer's risk. I think some of them you can get your Alzheimer's risk predicted. It's in 23andMe at least, I know, because I've looked at a friend's result just to understand kind of what it looks like in that portal. And I imagine other tests as well. Yeah. So if someone chooses to go down that route, firstly, how accurate are these tests? Are they as accurate as the sorts of genetic tests you get through your healthcare service? So for what they look for in general, yes. 
But what is different from if you saw a healthcare provider and had them order it, that would be considered medical grade testing or clinical grade testing. The big difference between them is that these direct consumer companies where, as you said, you're spitting, you're putting it in the post, that is looking at specific spots in certain genes and saying, is there a change in that spot or not? Now, medical grade testing in general, you're not just looking at one spot in genes, you're actually reading through the entire gene or like 99% of the gene and looking for any changes in that. So some of these companies do look at BRCA1 and 2. Um, so as we talked about with Angelina Jolie, breast cancer risk, ovarian prostate. So for you know one of those companies, they look at three hotspots on the gene. Now, a lot of people have, if they have a mutation in one of those BRCA genes, it's likely to be at one of those hotspots. But it also just could not be. There's like, you know, probably like a thousand mutations or something that could be present. So if I did 23andMe and or one of these other companies that offers BRCA testing and it comes back negative, it's not that I don't have any mutation in my BRCA genes. It's that the three that they look for, I don't have. So I, I feel pretty confident in for those three mutations, I don't have that. But what I get scared of is people not understanding the limits of the testing to know, oh, it's just these three. It's not the entire gene. That's the part that I'm like, I, I don't think people are getting. And then they're thinking, oh, I'm completely negative. And then they'll tell healthcare providers, oh, I did testing. I'm negative. It's like, well, let's get into the nitty gritty there because I don't want that to be missed and then you find out later, oh, I had a mutation, just a different spot in the gene that these companies didn't look for. They're only looking for the common spelling mistakes, not any spelling mistakes. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, some friends of mine even, have gifted these tests. They've given tests to people as a Christmas present. And they will just tick the, do you want to include the health section of this test? Because you can do just ancestry or include ancestry and health. And I think a lot of people won't read the fine print of exactly which conditions are being tested for. But they're getting all this information about their health that they didn't specifically ask for. Surely more information about your health is better. Like, the more you know, the more you can deal and prevent health issues. Is that right? I think it depends on your perspective. I tend to be in that group. And I find a lot of patients of mine being kind of New York based, like a lot of patients have that similar thing. Well, why wouldn't I do the test? And I think it's looking at what are you going to do with that information? You know, similar to what we talked about with Alzheimer's, like in, you know, cancer risk, like, okay, what are you going to do with this? Is this just going to weigh on your mind? I think in, in the pregnancy space, looking at, you know, doing something like looking at cystic fibrosis to see if someone's a carrier, along with a ton of other conditions. I don't just order that for <laughs> genetic counselors listening, like, why is Kira only ordering that? So when we're looking at that, I think it's like, okay, if I found out both biological parents are carriers for this. What are you going to do? Are you going to do anything about this during pregnancy? Is it going to affect anything? Are you going to want to do later testing to see, okay, did the pregnancy actually inherit that or not? And that involves invasive testing where we take a needle through the abdomen 
or a similar test. And some people might say, whoa, hold on. I don't want to do invasive testing. I don't. This won't change anything for me during pregnancy. So then if I hear them say that, I'm like, okay, well, then do you see a point of doing the testing? Whereas if someone says, yes, I would want to test because either I want to prepare to have a child with whatever condition we're looking at, start meeting people in the community, start lining up doctors that might be helpful, maybe having family move closer to be a support system, lots of different considerations, right? Or they may decide, yes, I would want to do the testing and I may consider ending a pregnancy. And that's why these conversations are so important. And when people just order this testing without talking through this with someone, that's what I worry, like, as you said, I mean, how many people read fine print? I don't read terms and conditions. I scroll to the end. Unless it's like a legal document that I'm signing, I'm not reading that. You know, let's be honest. So I think a lot of people are just kind of skipping ahead. And so I think it's, you really got to think about it, especially giving it to someone else. A few years ago, even my mom brought up, oh, what do we give the grandparents this year kind of thing? She's like, should we do one of these DNA kits? And I'm like, oh, hold on. That could stir up family drama. My family's pretty boring when it comes to stuff like that, luckily, but you never know. Well, you think they are. I think they are, right? I don't know. Speaking of families, there's definitely the issue of, okay, say I get my genetic test done. I find out I've got this horrible, incurable disease that I can't do anything about. My genetic information is shared with my blood relatives. How do you help someone negotiate that? Do you tell your sibling that they are likely to also have a horrible incurable disease? Do you tell your parents, your kids, if they're likely to inherit it? Are you the person that helps people process these kind of complications? Yeah. So when we're in a situation where it's not a random condition that comes up, like sometimes when I do testing, like Down syndrome will come up. The vast majority of cases, that's a random condition. By random, you mean it's a de novo, it's happened in that one person, they've not inherited it. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So there's definitely cases, lots of de novo random occurrences. But the other bucket of genetic conditions is some form of being inherited. So if you look at, especially like say identical twins, if one person does testing, you are automatically finding out for your twin what their genetic status is. And so that's tough, right? Because you're you're deciding for them. Now, most people don't have an identical twin, but they have other, you know, biological family members. So it is kind of weighing out telling them. And I think in general, it's probably a good idea to say, hey, I came back with this result. If you feel comfortable sharing that, saying, you know, my genetic counselor or whoever brought up that you should consider doing testing because you have X percent chance of also having this. Let's say I find something in me. I have a full brother. My full brother has a half chance of also having that. So I did my own carrier screening. I did like over 500 conditions. And so I found that I'm a carrier of one condition, as most people are, right? You said at the top of the show, like the more we test for, the more likely we're going to find something same with carrier screening. So out of 500 whatever conditions, I came back for one. So I was talking with him about it. And I was like, you know, we both don't have kids. We're not planning to in the near future. That's more long term. But looking at, okay, Jeremy, you have a 50% chance of also having that because we're full siblings. Now, being a carrier for something, that, you know, that's not as concerning because it doesn't affect my health. It wouldn't affect his health. But other things like cancer talking about, talking about your APOE status, 
for Chris's siblings, Liam, whoever else. I'm a Hunger Games fan, so I know Liam. So all his all his brothers there, I believe they're full brothers, that they also have a chance of inheriting this. And especially with his status of having two E4 copies, that means he inherited one from each parent. So at least his parents have, each of them have one copy of E4. So his siblings have a very high chance of also having this. So even him doing the testing, we now know Liam and he at least has one other brother, they have a high chance of also having this. So you're kind of finding this out for them. So and then it's tricky. That public. And then making that well. public. I, I don't know if he had conversations with families to be like, hey, is this okay to talk about? Because you start getting into, even when you do direct consumer testing, you mentioned that it's it's relatively inexpensive. One of the reasons that's inexpensive is because some of these companies are selling your data to other people. They're making a profit off of your DNA, which I knew about. And I was like, all right, I, I want to experience this so I can talk about it on podcasts and whatever else with patients. And I was talking about this, you know, sitting with all my cousins and you know, I said something about sending in DNA and one of my cousins, whatever, we're always joking around. And he's like, you didn't have my consent to send Deneen DNA to this lab. You're sending part of my information. Now, I'm not sending as much of his information as I am my brother because I'm biologically closer to my brother than my cousin. But he has a point, right? I'm sending all my information to this company that who knows exactly what they're going to do with. They could be bought out by another company. I mean, a lot of different considerations. So, Yes, when you're looking at the cost of the testing, it's like, oh, that's pretty inexpensive. You know, different things like St. Patrick's Day, find out if you're Irish, 17% off or whatever kind of sales they're doing, right? But you got to think about the big picture of, okay, it's more than just buying the test. You're also giving them this really valuable information. So given there are so many things for the average person to think about before getting a genetic test, how is it going to impact them? Can they do anything about the diseases that might crop up in their report? How is it going to affect their family members and their relationship with their family? Do you think people should be able to just order these kits online without speaking to a genetic counsellor? Because can someone give informed consent for one of these tests without knowing all of the implications? That's the golden question, right? <laughs> like for some of these companies, they have things set up and they've added more over the years of, okay, you have to watch this video before you can proceed to order the test or you have to read through this. You have to take this quiz to make sure you actually watch the video and you didn't just turn it on, do the dishes. So I think that's a great step in the right direction. I think it's great for people to have access to order this themselves but there's only so much we can do to make sure they're actually getting this information unless they're talking with someone. But even like if someone's sitting across the desk from me, like I mostly counsel in person, sometimes you can tell they're so engaged, right? They're looking, you know, I have a, I have a PowerPoint to refer to, we're chatting, they're asking good questions. Other times they're just sitting here, sitting back. I can tell I'm boring them and I'm really talking just to myself. It happens, right? We're tired, we're this, we're that. So even in those scenarios, I'm like, you know, I, I want to make sure it's informed consent, but I don't necessarily want to take away or think we should of people being able to order their own testing. I think there's this great happy medium where there's physician-assisted testing, where it's not quite direct consumer, but you can like put in basically a request for an order and pay for a kit, and a physician looks over 
or healthcare provider like will look over that request and then make sure it makes sense and everything. So I think that's kind of the happy medium. And, you know, even through my podcast, DNA Today, we have some sponsors that have that set up, which I really like because then it's somewhere in the middle because not everyone even has time to sit with a genetic counselor. They may not be able to afford to do that. There may not be someone within a radius where they can you know, drive or take public transport to, they may not have a stable internet connection to do a telehealth call. So I think we don't want to limit people being able to access this testing. So I think that's one aspect to think about. But there's a lot, right? <laughs> like, ideally, everybody would meet with a genetic expert, talk about it, is this right for you, then order the testing, then go over the results. But there's just also not enough genetic counselors to do that. I often get people asking me because they know, even before I started working on a genetics podcast, just as a biologist, oh, I'm thinking about doing one of these tests. Should I? You must get that even more big professionally, a genetic counselor. Oh, sure. I'm at a party and people are like, yeah, so designer babies or tell me about this. Yeah. Wh or which, which company should I do? Which is the best? Right. So for the people listening at home, I'm sure a fraction of the audience will have been thinking about getting a genetic test. These are genetically savvy, genetically interested people. They listen to a genetics podcast. Right. And they're not quite sure if they should get a test or not. What would you say to those people? I think think about, as I said, what and look at research, actually read that, maybe not fine print, but medium print or whatever, to see what is it testing for? What is it not testing for? What are you going to do with this information if you find out? Do you feel comfortable talking with biological family members to say, hey, I learned this. This is your chance. And outside of the health information, if you're just looking at ancestry, biological relatives, I think it's more just, are you going to find a you know family surprise kind of thing? I'm not so worried about you know anything else. I, I think the ancestry is really cool. I did it and I've done it with a couple of companies now. And and some of it as someone that is of European ancestry, it gets so specific where it even says, not only am I a good chunk of my ancestors from Ireland, but specifically Cork, Ireland, mostly East Cork, Ireland. Like that's how specific it gets. It's wild. Now, you know, there's a big discrepancy between people of European descent and non-European descent of how specific it gets. But, you know, I think that stuff is just cool. As long as you're prepared where you could find a surprise in your family that someone's not your relative or there's a new relative out there you didn't know about, I don't think there's too much concern of doing that testing other than, you know, you're also sending your DNA to this company. You don't know what they're going to do with that. You don't know exactly what you're signing up for. So I know some people will send it in with an alias. You might write Hermione Granger instead of your name or something. So you might write Thor, right? You know, maybe Chris should have done that. Um, so Yeah, and it, and it is important to say that the vast majority of the databases and the data sets that this research comes from is on, as with everything in genetics, white European populations. And yes. so the accuracy of the results as well is going to be better if you've got uh, white European heritage versus any other <laughs> genome in the world. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, that is how genetic research started of looking at when we first were drafting the human genome 20 years ago in 2023 now. So, you know, really landmark that we've, we've hit that. But yeah, they're looking at European genomes and a lot of research has been with that. And so that's something that in the world we are addressing. I wish we were addressing it faster 
But, you know, we are making progress with it. But I think that's something to think about, not just for Ancestry, but really any test. When I do like carrier screening that I've been mentioning, if I have someone that does not have a European background, there's a higher chance it's going to miss that they're a carrier for something compared to if I have a patient that has a European background. So there's a lot of different and that could be a whole nother episode. But, you know, that's a big consideration in our field. That's all for now. Thanks to Kira Deneen, and you can listen to more of Kira talking about genetic counselling and how genetics impacts human health on her podcast, DNA Today. And there is, of course, a link in our show notes. We'll be back next time taking a look at genetics in pop culture, from comics to musicals, even Great British Bake Off. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to leave us either a rating in the Spotify app or write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference by pushing our show to the homepage of the apps and helps more people discover us. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first create the media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learner societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production is by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.